0: I'm Shona Thompson, and today on the Bill Kelly podcast, Prime Minister Trudeau has announced measures aimed at looking into Chinese interference in two Canadian elections. Is it enough? And why is there no public inquiry? We find out more from Daniel Balin, director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Economist and director of the Centre for Future Work, Jim Stafford, says the Bank of Canada should try a different tack in the battle against inflation. And living on a cruise ship as it travels the world, it's being offered for a starting price of $30,000. Frederick DeMarche, director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Toronto Metropolitan University, joins us. The Bill Kelly podcast Starts right now.
1: Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
0: Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has announced some new steps that his government will take to combat foreign interference in our elections.
2: I've tasked Minister Mendicino to launch later this week a consultation to guide how we will set up a new foreign influence transparency registry in Canada. We need to make sure there is transparency and accountability from those who advocate on behalf of foreign governments while protecting communities who are often both targeted by attempts at foreign interference and who feel targeted when xenophobia and fear-mongering overtake legitimate concern for our democracy and national security. It's very important that we start with this consultation because we have to be mindful of history any time we're talking about registries of foreigners in our country. I've also tasked Minister Mendicino to immediately establish a counter-foreign interference coordinator in Public Safety Canada. This office will ensure that we're taking on these issues across government in a coordinated way. I've also tasked Minister Leblanc and the Clerk of the Privy Council to review and bring forward a plan to implement any outstanding recommendations from NSICOP, the Rosenberg Report and any other reviews on these matters in the next 30 days.
0: That was from the news conference late yesterday afternoon. Specifically, this is about alleged Chinese interference in not one, but two Canadian elections. The announcement did not include a public inquiry, which opposition leaders say is the only method of investigation that they would support. Joining us now to discuss this further is Daniel Bellant, who is the director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Good morning and thank you for joining us today.
3: Good morning. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Um, so, what did you think of the prime minister's announcement? Does this go far enough? Uh,
3: probably not. I think that this won't certainly stop the uh, relentless uh, attacks from the uh, the opposition parties. I think that it's a um, really a difficult moment for uh, for the liberals and Justin Trudeau. The uh, uh, the conservatives, the Bloc and uh, the NDP, are really um, criticizing uh, the the prime minister for um, really this kind of slow uh, response uh, to what is really, uh, I think, a major affair. Um, it's a challenge to our uh, national security and to the integrity of our democracy, uh, but it's also um, something that has to do with the the judgment of the prime minister. So we don't know exactly what he knew uh, and when, right? Uh, but what is clear is that the opposition won't stop, um, its attacks, uh, until at the very least we have a, a national inquiry about this. And the prime minister yesterday stopped short of moving forward in that direction. Al- although he appointed a reporter, um, a special reporter who will look into the possibility of uh, launching uh, a special inquiry about this or maybe a new investigation or a judicial review. So I think that he's in a way planting the seeds for a national inquiry, but we are not there yet. And I think that the opposition will not be happy until um, the prime minister crosses that river.
0: Well, you know, you raised an interesting question that I think a lot of Canadians are asking, and that is why has it taken so long? I mean, you know, Chinese interference in our elections, you know, that's, uh, an attack on the basis of our government and our way of life here. Um, but I'm also wondering um, if you know planting the seed of maybe there being a public inquiry down the road. If you know the the idea is not to just kick this down the road as far as they can without really getting into uh, the weeds on a lot of this.
3: Yeah, I think that yesterday's announcement was really uh, politically, at least, about the prime minister's uh, attempt to buy time um, and. Of course, there are some, I think, useful, um, elements in that announcement in terms of the foreign influence transparency, uh, transparency registry. This is not something new. Other countries have moved in that direction. Um, also there is at least one bill that was presented in the Senate last year, uh, more than a year ago, um, uh, about this. So I think it's good that we are exploring that uh, possibility and moving in that direction. Um, at the same time, um, I do think that the call from, from opposition parties and also uh, people outside of parliament uh, for uh, a public inquiry is, you know, getting louder and louder. And I'm not sure how long the prime minister will be able to resist that push.
0: Are there valid reasons for not having a public inquiry?
3: Well, a lot of this, of course, is about top secret uh, information, Uh, gathered by CSIS and and, um, other players. And so I think we need more than a public inquiry. Public inquiry could deal with some aspects of this, but a lot of this information should not be made public. (laughs) Um, And so um, there needs to be a a really systematic, um, I would say systematic uh, campaign to fight uh, Chinese interference and more generally foreign interference in our elections and our political system. But obviously China right now is probably the biggest threat. Um, and it's important to, to not just for Canadians in general, but also to protect um, Canadians of Chinese background uh, who might be targeted by um, really um, attempts to, to influence them or um, to also, uh, you know, basically put them under the gaze of uh Chinese surveillance uh we have 1.8 million Canadians of Chinese descent um and it's also important to protect them against these efforts to really manipulate them and and also to um to really control them and so I think that uh it, it's a it's a major um I think national security issues but it's also very important when we talk about the integrity of our democracy and also the optics in terms of the legitimacy of our uh, electoral system.
0: Now, the special rapporteur or the investigator could recommend a public inquiry or a judicial inquiry, but is the final decision up to the prime minister?
3: Yes, it is. And so uh, in the end, it, it, I think it's putting the prime minister in a, in a tough spot. Yes, he's buying time, but in the end, um, he will still be under pressure uh, to move forward with the public inquiry. All the opposition parties are um, really pushing for this really hard. Um, and, you know, uh, it's a minority parliament. So that complicates things for the prime minister in terms of the composition of the different uh, parliamentary committees, uh, the House committees, right? So it's it's much harder. To, you don't control the committees uh, when you have a, a minority government like when you have a a majority government, so it's harder to control what's going on in the committees, but also uh, you always face the prospect of, um, you know, uh, uh, losing uh, a confidence vote, and then basically, uh, um, you know, having elections that at the time that it's not of your choosing, and that uh, you might find problematic. You look at the polls, the liberals are not doing very well right now, and um and say elections in the spring over this for example um will probably not be very good for them uh, especially if this story keeps growing in terms of um what the media reports about it the leaks uh, all the what the new information that might emerge uh, it doesn't look good for for the liberals and the prime minister um of course the prime minister has survived the SNC-Lavalin affair Uh, the Wheat Charity Affair and other affairs. Um, So in some ways, it's kind of the Teflon prime minister. But this is really big. And and this has the potential politically to really embarrass the Liberals uh, on a very, very large scale.
0: Um, What really can Canadians expect to hear out of the moves that the prime minister has been launching?
3: Well, we'll see about the reporter, uh, who the reporter is and uh, what they do. And, and what they will recommend, again, it's about buying time, but uh, the pressure is mounting. Um, in terms of the other, um, you know, there are new investigations that are being launched and, and this foreign influence transparency registry. So we'll see if if the government really moves fast uh, here. I think they will have to, uh, in a way, because of the, the strong level of public uh, scrutiny over this uh, and the opposition that's doing its job. Uh, they are not always doing a very good job, but this time around, they are, because they smell blood, especially the conservatives, they know that this is something that uh, could be really hard uh, uh, for for the prime minister uh, if we discover, um, you know, information, for example, about, about the fact that maybe he knew more uh, than he's saying about that back in 2019 or 2021. Because we talk also about interference during two different federal elections. Two thousand nineteen and two thousand twenty one. We all also know that the for the, the Chinese Communist Party, at least in two thousand twenty one, uh the, the conservatives were were the enemy. They they would and there is evidence of that that they would, you know, have preferred uh, uh the the liberals to remain in power rather than rather than having the, the conservatives. Yeah, but and of course might- that's what happened, but it's probably not because of Chinese interference. But you know, there they are Conservatives who claims that they lost uh, a number of seats because of that, because of Chinese interference in 2021. And so we have to look into this as well, but also into what the prime minister and um, his government uh, knew about this uh, and whether they did enough to, uh, to fight this uh, uh, interference uh, in the aftermath of the 2019 uh, elections uh, and also uh, uh, of the 2021 elections.
0: Well, you know, uh, the fact that the Chinese apparently were happy with a liberal minority, I know political strategists who couldn't pull that off. But no doubt uh, we'll be calling on you again. We'll be keeping an eye on this situation and uh, finding out as much as we can about it. And I wanted to thank you for your time, Danielle.
3: You're most welcome. Have a wonderful day.
0: You too. Daniel Balland is the director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada.
3: You're listening to The Bill Kelly
1: Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: The Bank of Canada is scheduled to give its latest decision on interest rates tomorrow. Most analysts are expecting the central bank will be holding the line this time at 4.25% due to conflicting economic signals. But economist and director of the Centre for Future Work, Jim Stanford, has a different idea about what should happen in this country to fight inflation. And he joins the Bill Kelly Show now. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. I, uh, you're joining us from uh, from the B.C. Thank area. And, and so I appreciate you getting up very early to do this. Uh, my pleasure. Okay, so what are you suggesting that the Bank of Canada do instead of uh, fiddling around with interest rates? Well, I do hope that they hold
1: the line uh, tomorrow with their latest decision. They, they have increased interest rates uh, eight times since last March. And uh, for anyone who has a mortgage or a car loan or a credit card uh, balance, Uh, It's been painful. Wow. The the rates have come up and uh, Canadian households are now giving tens of billions of dollars, uh, literally, in additional interest payments to the banks uh, instead of using them to help uh, buy their groceries. Which You know, you need every penny for that these days. Um, Tomorrow, the the bank will be holding the line on interest rates, uh, it seems, uh, and with good reason. There's lots of signs out there that Canada's economy is now shrinking. And not growing. The latest GDP numbers show a, a contraction in the economy, and uh, it hasn't really affected inflation very much yet. Uh, but it is certainly adding another layer of uh, uncertainty to Canadian households.
0: So, what are you suggesting the Bank of Canada do instead? Well, I think
1: that we've been too reliant on this one great big hammer uh, called interest rates in the economic uh, toolbox, and if the only thing you have is a hammer then everything starts to look like a nail. Uh, That's the old adage. And uh, when inflation kind of first started rising uh, a year and a half ago or so, um, the Bank of Canada quickly turned to uh, interest rates as the kind of one and only solution. But this particular inflation that we're experiencing in the wake of the COVID pandemic uh, really uh, is different than inflation that we used to have, say, in the 1970s or the 1980s. This is where the classic recipe that if you have inflation, well, it's probably because wages are growing too fast. You have what they call a wage price spiral. Therefore, uh, all you have to do is cool off the labor market, throw you know a couple hundred thousand people out of work and, and that will solve the inflation problem. But uh, this time around, it was a very different story. Uh, we had all the supply chain disruptions from the pandemic. We had shortages of lots of key commodities like building products, semiconductors, new cars all of them in short supply. Then we had the war in Ukraine and and an energy price shock that made things worse. None of that had anything to do with the labor market and people working and and earning wages. In fact, wages have been growing much slower than prices throughout the whole thing. So uh, I think what we needed instead was maybe a a more nuanced and multidimensional approach to inflation. Uh, Don't just uh, assume that uh, cooling off the domestic economy is going to solve all those international problems.
0: Well, you've written a piece that appeared in the weekend uh, Toronto Star, and it was called The Bank of Canada Has It Wrong. We need to make more goods to fight inflation, and you don't do that by slowing business down. So, how is the Bank of Canada supposed to make that happen?
1: Well, uh, they can at least not make things worse by deliberately trying to contract the economy. Uh, I was kind of riffing there in that column off of a, an old slogan. You might have heard it. Uh, you might have heard somebody pontificate on this the, the old idea that. Inflation has a problem of too much money chasing too few goods. Uh, This is kind of a a little uh, cliche that is often uh, taught in economics classes. Uh, Too much money chasing too few goods. The problem is it doesn't tell you where the problem came from. Did it come from too much money or did it come from too few goods? And uh, right now, by trying to raise interest rates, uh, contract new borrowing, and slow down people's uh, wage growth, the Bank of Canada is trying to basically contract the amount of money that we have. And in fact, the money supply in Canada is decreasing. So that means that people will have less money to, to buy the necessities with. If the problem was caused by too few goods rather than too much money, then uh, contracting uh, the overall um, uh, spending power of people through high interest rates will just kind of lock in that. Uh, I presented data to show that we're still well below where we should be in terms of total economic output in Canada, uh, given the pre-COVID uh, trend, uh, we haven't caught back up to where the economy would be without COVID. We've still got, in essence, damage to repair. And um, because of their, you know, very one-sided approach to using high interest rates to slow down.
0: Uh, Jim, we're getting a bit of a fade in and out. Uh, okay. If you're if you're moving around a bit, try to stay close to your microphone. Oh, okay. I,
1: My apologies. My apologies. I don't
0: want to miss uh, anything that you're saying.
1: Um Anyways, uh, by by trying to suppress uh, spending power at this moment, we're kind of locking in uh, this condition of underperformance uh, after the pandemic.
0: Um, We are speaking with Jim Stanford, who is... uh a, uh, an economist and director of the Centre for Future Work, and we're talking about the Bank of Canada and maybe doing something a little bit different in terms of either hiking or holding uh, the uh, central bank rate, which is due to be uh, set, or at least the hold the line tomorrow. But Jim, I wanted to ask you, because we just heard in the news, uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell is expected to warn Congress that the Fed is going to have to raise interest rates even higher if readings on the economy keep coming in really hot, and you know, what happens in the U.S., we tend to follow in lockstep. So if the U.S. is doing this, what can Canada do? Uh,
1: well, we do have uh, our own currency, the Canadian dollar, and we're not locked into the U.S. Uh, banking and monetary system. Uh, economic conditions in the U.S. are a little bit different than they are in Canada. The unemployment rate, their economy is still growing. Where ours. Is uh, so there's nothing in stone that shows that the, uh, the Canadian uh, central bank has to follow the American. Uh, one of the consequences, if we did not uh, match them on higher interest rates, is we'd probably see the dollar uh, soften a little bit. Um, uh, but frankly, from the economic perspective, that's not necessarily bad. It gives uh, some of our exports an additional push. So uh, it's certainly one factor to take into account. But it doesn't mean we have to match the Americans.
0: Well, and if- there, are,
1: uh, there are other countries in the world that have taken a different approach in raising interest rates. In Japan, they haven't raised interest rates at all and their inflation uh, is, is much lower than ours. So I think we do have uh, the ability to kind of carve our own path here.
0: Um, and if we do carve our own path, uh, is it possible that other countries will be following our lead?
1: Well, I do think that um, around the world, uh, people are looking at this inflation and saying, hey, you know what, we're not 100% sure the old textbook response that we've been following Uh, is necessarily the right one. For example, in Europe, they they have the European Central Bank to govern the uh, money in the euro countries. And they just uh, had a meeting uh, a few days ago where they said, you know what, I think we've got this wrong. It isn't wages that are pushing up inflation. They've looked at the role of uh, corporate profit seeking, uh, higher higher, uh, prices set by businesses taking advantage of the post-COVID moment. And uh, thinking, you know, that's actually where the inflation pressure is coming from, not from workers and their wages and thinking about a different strategy. So I think uh, around the world, people are cottoning on to the fact that just dusting off this old recipe book from the 1970s and the so-called wages prices spiral might not do the trick. Uh, If Canada can be a little bit more open minded on how we respond, uh, I think that will foster uh, um, more open thinking around the world.
0: Jim Stanford is an economist and director of the Centre for Future Work. His column in the Toronto Star is called The Bank of Canada Has It Wrong. We need to make more goods to fight inflation, and you don't do that by slowing business down. Jim, the piece was published on Saturday. What has the reaction been since?
3: Uh, well, um,
1: in the media business, I'm sure you've, you've experienced this. You, you, get, you get a lot of wild and woolly comments coming, some, uh, some in favour, some, uh, some opposed. Um, but I do think that um, both the uh, the Bank of Canada itself and the broader community of economic policy makers uh, including the uh, private sector economists I think are to some extent all scratching their heads. I don't think anyone knows what the exact answer is given the unique set of challenges that we're experiencing uh, after the pandemic many of those uh, initial supply chain problems that caused the initial rise of inflation are, are getting fixed. Uh, You know, the clogged ports and the disrupted uh, transportation links and the supply of semiconductors, those things are all improving quite rapidly. And so I expect that we'll see inflation coming down anyway, even without the kind of painful medicine that we've seen from the Bank of Canada. And that might be one of the factors behind the Bank of Canada deciding to hold the rate steady tomorrow rather than give us another increase.
0: Even with the saber rattling from the U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman.
1: Right. Well, and again, that is that is one factor that they'll be looking, but I think they'll be focused mostly on the domestic economy and uh, what, what the uh, statistics are indicating is happening here. And, and clearly, the uh, domestic numbers uh, don't look very good right now.
0: Jim Stanford is an economist and director of the Center for Future Work. Joining us on The Bill Kelly Show, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: If you've ever taken a cruise, you may have found yourself wondering about making it your lifestyle. You see the world. There's great food, plenty of libations and entertainment. But nah, that would just be too expensive. Well, maybe not. A cruise company is launching a three-year, 130,000-mile Escape Your Daily Life cruise. It starts at $30,000 per person uh, per year. Uh, joining us now from the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Toronto Metropolitan University is its director, Frederick Demanche. Thank you so much for taking time to join us today. You're welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Life at Sea Cruises is promising 375 ports around the world, visiting 135 countries and uh, all seven continents. There's got to be a catch here
4: well i don't know if there is a catch really i mean it's you know we we may think of it as some kind of a trend but at the moment it's only one company proposing a unique package of information right of of uh, you know for cruising for 3 years um, i'm wondering how people will take it you know i you know we may be used to go on a cruise ship for a week or 2 weeks or maybe 3 weeks but can you imagine for 3 years uh visiting all continents sounds really nice but uh, you're going to be stuck on a ship for 3 years so that would worry me a little bit um but other than that i can understand that people will be attracted by uh, the glamour and and um, you know the opportunity to visit the world you know this ship would be sailing all around the world across um, you know the the different continents and for 3 years
0: well, uh, it, you know, we said it, it starts at 30000 per person per year. Uh, that comes out to a, a price around $180,000 for the three-year trip for two people. The balcony suites, though, they are double size, and they go up to $109,000 per person per year.
4: Exactly. So, you know, the cheap price is certainly for a small cabin without a balcony, you know, maybe you have a window, uh, but uh, that's not very much. And and you need to think also of the extra cost of going on land, because every time you're going to be going on land, you're probably going to be willing to visit some of the World Heritage sites, you're going to be visiting the attractions, you want to go out and play golf, maybe, or do something like this. So uh, you have to think of this as as uh, adding to to the cost of, of the cruise.
0: Well, one of the things that was interesting, though, as a part of the lure, they're offering remote work. But if you're in the middle of the ocean, cruising from one location to another, connectivity could be a bit iffy.
4: No? It could be a bit of fee, but that's what they promise. You know, they promise a, a stable internet connection. So you should have Wi-Fi, you should be able to work. But I'm wondering what kind of company will allow you to let you go for one year, two years, or even three years, you know, without ever going to the office. So I guess it's possible, but uh, I think this will be mostly attracting to uh, people in the later stage of life, people who are retired, people who have time, and, um, you know, people who don't have uh, any uh, uh constraint, you know, with respect to, to family or to work.
0: Frederick uh, Frederick is joining us. He's director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Toronto Metropolitan University. We're talking about a three-year cruise around the world. Um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, who some of the people who are that might be interested in doing this. Obviously, you have to have some means.
4: Yeah, you need to have some means. You need to have the time, first of all, you know, and and uh you need to have some means because you're probably going to have a, a, a home uh, somewhere, you know, on the continent somewhere that you're, you're not going to give up. You're not going to sell, probably. Um, But certainly you you need some money, obviously. But cruising, you know, is is available easily for a lot of people at a relatively cheap price, but it's only for a week. So can you imagine for a whole year, Uh you, you know, you, you need you need to 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 plan for a uh, significant budget, not only for the price of the cruise, but like I said earlier, for the excursion, because, you know, what's the purpose of being on a cruise if you only stay on the ship? You want to go uh, on the continent and and visit the many attractions that uh, uh, the itinerary will allow you to visit.
0: Well, um, you know, you pointed out earlier that you're spending three years on a cruise ship. And uh, most of the people that I've talked to that have done some form of cruising uh, in one way or another, One of their most common complaints is that the quarters, they're pretty tight. The quarters are very
4: tight indeed, especially if you go for the cheaper version of the of the deal, right? So, um, you know, like I said, you know, if you go for a week or two, maybe you can stand it because you know that you're going to be uh, going back home soon. But but for three years, I know that personally, I would not do it. You know, I would go, uh, uh, you know, despite being in the in the fresh air on the deck, you know, I would feel uh, claustrophobic uh, uh, after a little while. Um, it's it's definitely not for everybody, and yeah? people will have to be careful. And, and, you know, it's, it's for people who know what cruising is. They have to know what they get into before they buy into
0: it. Well, one of the things that they had listed was uh, viewing the 13 wonders of the world. But from what I understand, some of the wonders that they had listed don't actually exist anymore.
4: Well, that's that's true because some of them have been uh, destroyed at, at one point or another, you know, going going back to the uh, to antiquity, right? But but nonetheless, if you look at the itinerary, uh, you know, they go around every single continent, you know, in Asia they go to the Mediterranean in Europe, you know, they go across uh, around Africa and South America and North America all the way to Alaska. They go south to Antarctica as well. They go through the Panama Canal. So there will be a lot of things to see and a lot of attractions on these trips, nonetheless, even though you may be missing a few of those uh, uh, world marvels that, that are being advertised.
0: Well, that also means then that you're going to need quite a bit of clothing and changes of clothing to be able to withstand all of those different climates.
4: Yes, indeed. But remember that as you go around the world, you know, you follow the sun, basically. So, uh, you know, I, I don't suppose they will be exposing you to, uh, uh, you know, the rough seas of the, the South Pacific, for example, in winter. Uh, you know, that's the, the 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 beauty of being on a ship. You know, you, you follow the seasons, basically. And whether it's going to be in the northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere, uh, normally it's going to be during the best period of time.
0: Well, you know, I mean, I can certainly see that you don't plan to go to the Caribbean during hurricane season. Nobody should. It's not a good idea. But what impact could climate change have on something like this?
4: Well, you know, that's the risk of any kind of travel, no matter what. So no matter what you go, whether it's on land or or on sea, you know, you, you have to be exposed to some risk. And I guess that's one thing that people will have to consider as well. What kind of risk are they willing to take? Think about the risk of getting sick on board. Um, you know, sick may be uh, related to the food that you eat, intoxication, or this type of thing. Or, you know, uh, if things go really bad, you, you can get a, a, a dangerous and and um, um, you know, very severe sickness. You know, think about, you know, getting to getting uh, treatment. You know, for for anything uh, that, that is a bit more uh, dangerous than than uh, a regular intoxication or regular virus. So, um, especially after the past two or three years, when we've heard, you know, so many bad stories on cruise ships about everybody being infected, you know, with COVID to start with, but also with um, uh, you know food infections. Um, you know, that to me would be a, a, a reason to pose and to think really hard about whether or not I want to be on a ship for three years.
0: Oh, yeah. We've also heard about outbreaks of norovirus and, and other problems that are highly contagious as well. I guess you have to keep that in mind.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. That's the type of things that people have to consider no matter where they go and, and uh, no matter the kind of trip that they are doing. But this is particularly something to think about when you want to go on board for uh, up to three years. Now, the good news is that, um, you know, the companies uh, we would allow you, for example, to um, to split the time on the ship with, for example, another couple. So you may buy with a friend of yours, you know, the, the, the trip. For three years, but you may be willing to do uh, only uh, eighteen months, and your friends will do another eighteen months. So that's uh, a little possibility that uh, the company is, is giving to people if they think that three years is too long.
0: Well, Frederick Demanche is director of the Ted Rogers School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at Toronto Metropolitan University. Thanks for joining us this morning.
4: You're welcome, Shana. have a good day. And you, the Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to
0: noon on nine hundred CHML.